Well, thank you, brethren, for those prayers, and we add our amens to them. And I just want to say, uh, as we turn to Matthew 13, that uh, we're thankful for the uh, warm hospitality and kindness of the Lethams last night for our home Bible study. Look forward to uh, being with the wards next Tuesday night, Lord willing. And thankful for all of you that uh, have taken time out of your schedules to be here tonight to pray with the saints and to grow in our understanding of the Word of God. And we pray that uh, the Lord will help us. I know the Lord has a blessing in His Word for each of us tonight. In Matthew 13, we've been looking at this uh, mystery parables discourse. The Lord described early in the chapter that He is revealing eight parables to describe what would be happening here on earth between His first and His second coming, what we often refer to as the inter-advent age, the age between His first advent and His second advent. And we've already looked at the two main parables Sunday morning. We took the opportunity on Sunday morning to uh, look at the parable of the sower and Sunday evening to look at the parable of the tares of the field. And then last night we looked at a little bit more detail of the parable of the tares of the field and the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And uh, now we want to move further down in the chapter to look at parables number 5 and number 6. Parable number 5 is beginning in verse 44. So let's read that together. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the fifth one. And the sixth one that follows after it in verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now as we try to interpret these two parables, again, they are like the two parables of the mustard seed and the leaven in that our Lord does not explain them. Like He explained the parable of the sower and He explained the parable of the tares of the field. These He doesn't explain. So He leaves it a little more work for us to do. I think the disciples, as they were given to Him, I think they understood them uh, because they asked the question about the parable of the tares of the field and and later on they seem to understand what He's communicating to them. It's a little harder work for us. 2,000 years later. What is he referring to in these two parables? And when you look at the commentaries, they usually divide between two different ways of looking at them. Either they see both these two parables as referring to God's view of His people... Okay, So one is, from the perspective of God, looking at His people... And this is how he sees his people. And the second is that both of them are a believer's view of God, and particularly of Jesus Christ. Well, as I prayed about it and studied it, I feel like there is a third way to look at it. 
And, and I'll try to show you tonight in studying it out how we can validate that it may be possible. It may be possible, and I think it's very likely, I'm convinced in my own heart anyway, see if you're convinced, that both are true. But they're true in this way, that the first parable, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field, is God's view of His people. And I'm going to show you why we interpret it that way. But the second one, the pearl of the great price, is a believer's view of Christ. So that those that that look at lumping both of them together, I think the problem is in lumping them together that they're not exactly alike. There are some differences between them. And so let's look at it in detail. So first, the parable of the treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that treasure. Look at your Bible. Is that what it says? No, he, he, he wants the treasure, but he buys the field. Now, we already know from the previous parables that the field is the world. And the idea of buying is could very likely could be linked to redemption. And we know that our Lord, when He died on the cross, He not only redeemed His own, He redeemed the entire universe. Because sin has impacted the entire universe. Certainly all of the earth, but all of the universe is contaminated by sin and needed to be redeemed. And then the idea of treasure. Does God ever refer to His people as treasure? And of course He does. If you go back and we're going to look at several scriptures here in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible and you want to read along, I would encourage you to do that. You may just want to write down the references and look at them later. But all you would have to do is take out a, a concordance and look up the word treasure and you would find each of these verses. The first one is in Exodus chapter 19. Our Lord has redeemed Israel out of bondage to Egypt. He's brought them across the Red Sea, miraculously, across the wilderness of Sinai into the Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, miraculously as well. If you look at that wilderness today, it's just as rugged as it was then. And here they are at the foot, and He says to them in chapter 19, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Speaking of his Old Testament people Israel here, the Hebrew word is segulah, and it's the word that's used in all of these references. You are my segulah. You're my special people of all the nations, of all the peoples. It's an interesting way for God to describe His people, isn't it? Now we know that the Bible tells us in many places that God does not have favorites. 
There's no partiality with God. He never plays favoritism. So in what sense are they special? Well, they're special because they've been called out and set apart by God for a specific mission to represent Him here on earth. Of all the people, all the nations that could have been set apart by Him, He sets apart these people to do this. And privilege, privilege, privilege is written all over this, isn't it? And the same is true of you and me, as we shall see. Because some of the references that want to say, well, this one, that the treasure hidden in the field is Israel, and the pearl of great price is the church. Well, actually, the the word treasure, this same word, is also used in the New Testament, referring to believers in the church. But before we look at that verse, there are a couple other Old Testament references that I think are really profitable to look at. And the next one is over with the same word, segulah. He uses it in, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. The whole first few verses of chapter 7 are really special. The Lord reminds them, like for instance in verse 3, that they are not to be to intermarry with the unbelievers. You shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor their daughter to your son. And I think this is a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, where this very thing is what caused the flood to to occur back in Genesis 6. I don't think we have any evidence of angels procreating with human beings. I don't think that's that's introducing something into Genesis 6 that's not there. But we do have the fact of Believers intermarrying with unbelievers, that was a problem then. It's a problem with Israel all the way through the Old Testament such that when you even get after the Babylonian captivity in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah says, look, this is what caused us to go into Babylonian captivity in the first place. And you're falling prey to this again. And of course, the Apostle Paul talks about it in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and other places too. It's so important because the offspring, the children of parents that are, one's a believer and one's an unbeliever, causes enormous confusion for the child. And the Lord knows that. And He's sensitive to that, see? The child wants to love both parents. Which one am I going to follow, the believer or the unbeliever? But He says in verse 6, here in chapter 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure. There's the word. A segula above all the peoples on the face of the earth. See, the Lord continues to remind him of this. His own special treasure. And if, if we could just Hold on to this thought. And I struggle with it just as much as any of us do. If we could just hold on to the thought of the privilege that is ours to know Jesus Christ, to work together in representing Him, a lot of the little squabbles and difficulties that separate us, we could quickly dismiss compared to the privilege that we have of being God's special treasure. Such a special treasure that He would send, as David said in his prayer, His only begotten Son to redeem us. And it says in the parable, for joy over it, He goes and sells all that He has. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before Him, Jesus Christ went to the cross. 
And you know what that joy was? It, his, that joy probably included a lot of things. Redeeming the universe from the curse of sin and those things. But I think a lot of that joy was you and me. Think about that. He looked at you and me. And he said, yes, Father, I want to go for this person and this person and this person. And we don't want to take that personal element out of the whole cross work of our Lord. As well as His high priestly ministry for us. He says, you are a holy people. One of the highest motives to sanctification. Because that's what holiness means, right? Living to be more and more like who we are. We already are the children of God, but He wants us to live more like who we are. To become more and more holy, more and more Christ-like, more and more like Him. So we can better represent Him in this world. And that's one of the highest motives to sanctification. Sure, there are a lot of personal benefits to sanctification, right? To be freed from the contaminations and consequences of bad decisions and sins and mistakes. But, but a higher motive is to do it because we love our Lord. And if we know how worthy He is of our devotion and separation unto Him, it'll be a slam dunk. It'll be no problem at all, right? A lot of times we forget who it is that's redeemed us. So he says this in Deuteronomy 7. And then a few pages over in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, he says it again in a little bit different way. In 14 verse 2, For you are... Well, even starting in verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You are the children of Yahweh Elohim. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's what He keeps saying, right? Isn't that what Ephesians 1 is trying to communicate to us? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, that we might be holy and blameless and a people set apart for His name. And then over, it's still in Deuteronomy in chapter 26, right before the cursings and blessings of the law, right at the end of chapter 26, verse 18 and 19. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His segulah, His special people, just as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments and that He will set you high above all nations which He has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God just as He has spoken. You say, but in the church age, it's not like that, right? It's not national because the church is not just a national body. It's a multinational body. People from every... Language and people group are included in the church. So in what sense are we set high above? A lot of people who are Christians are suffering in prison camps and being falsely imprisoned for their faith. How are they being set high above? You know how we're being set high above? By knowing Jesus Christ. 
We have a personal relationship with the Son of God and therefore with the Father through Him. And we can communicate with Him anytime we want. We don't have to be in Jerusalem. We don't have to be on our knees, although that's a good way to pray to Him. We don't have to be in priestly garments. We don't have to be facing east or facing west. Wherever we are, we can communicate with our Lord. I'd say that's a pretty high privilege, wouldn't you? <laughs> Talking to our Creator, Redeemer, worshiping Him, telling how much we think of Him and His Son. And then over in Psalm, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 135 is the last place that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament. Psalm 135 in verse 4. Just a short verse. For the Lord has chosen Jacob. That's exactly what he has said all the way through in these other verses. He's chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his segulah, his special treasure. So I think we all can have a pretty good handle on the fact of the this treasure. Israel would fit as being that treasure. But it's not just Israel. You go to the New Testament and all you have to do is go to the great Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 and he uses the same word. Now he uses the Greek word and in the Septuagint this Greek word is the word that's used in place of segulah in each of these other verses. Periousios. He says, who gave himself for us, Titus 2.14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And that could be translated his own special treasure. It's the same word. Zealous for good works. So the same word is used of believers in the church. God's special treasure. And, of course, the Apostle Peter, he will use a word very similar to this word, a little bit different, but it communicates a similar thought in 1 Peter chapter 2, right? In verse 9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. Now, that word is very close to the same word, a little bit different, but the, the idea is the same, isn't it? His own special people... For what purpose? Same purpose Israel had under the Old Covenant. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That we might proclaim, that we might be a public testimony for the Lord. Individually, wherever we are, and especially corporately when we're together. That's why I love it here, being on the boulevard. I love hearing the sound of the cars and the motorcycles going by because the idea of being on an ivory palace up on a hill somewhere with a nice green belt and a moat all around it or whatever is not what, that's not what missionaries that get on the mission field. They take a building out where the people are so they can be a testimony and a light where the people are. And I like that. Let the sounds come. Let the devil bring them. The Lord can keep our minds off of them. Or He can use other means to quiet them, can't He? It makes us trust in the Lord more. I like that. And it causes us to be more dependent upon the Lord and upon one another, and I like that. That's the place of fruitfulness. 
See, man gets this idea that we need to build an ivory palace here on earth. Beloved, the ivory palace is already there in heaven. Christ said, I'm preparing a place for you. But the place is there. It's not going to be here. Suffering here, glory there. The same as our Lord. Ought not you, the Christ to have suffered first and then entered His glory? And Paul says in Romans 8, it's the same pattern for us that we, we who are the Lord's and who are led by the Holy Spirit, we will suffer for Him now and then we will be glorified later. And that's why the health and wealth gospel goes totally against the teeth of the gospel of the Bible. Because the Bible says suffering now, and the health and wealth gospel says, no, you mustn't suffer now. You've got to have glory now. They want to skip the suffering. And suffering, don't take that away from us. That's our privilege. You realize for all eternity we will never be able to suffer for the Lord again like we can now? We won't suffer for Him in our glorified bodies. We can't suffer for Him in heaven. We'll never be in prison for our faith in heaven, will we? No. We'll never have pain for the Lord in heaven because the glorified body doesn't have pain. It's only now that we can suffer for Him. And we do it, why? Because we love Him. And we want to be a testimony for Him. And we want to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood and His own special people. See, the devil would block our minds from seeing the truth of who we are and whose we are. We belong to the Son of God. He redeemed us with His own blood. There isn't any higher price. Someone says they're worried about the gospel of self-esteem. Well, how much self-esteem do you, how much more do you need? God loves you and thinks you are so special to Him that He sent His Son to die for you. I don't need any more self-esteem than that. I don't need to worry about my accomplishments anymore. I don't need to worry about the religion of self-achievement anymore. I don't need to worry about whether I'm doing better than you or better than her or better than... See, all that competition, religious competition, goes out the window. When we realize, we say, hey, <laughs> I don't have to do anything more. And Christ still loves me. He loves me as much now as He did the day I trusted Him. And He loves me as much now as He will a million years from now. I am the Lord, I change not. His love is the same. It's consistent. It was always there for us. And we find out in the Bible He loved us before we were even conceived. And before the foundation of the world. Oh, that we could grasp a hold of this. The devil doesn't want us to see it because when we see it, we become a shining light for Christ and more people are drawn to the Lord Jesus. The devil doesn't like that. So I would submit to you that this parable of the treasure hidden in the field is a parable of God's view of His people of all dispensations. You might call them the remnant of every dispensation. In the tribulation saints, after the church is taken out, there will be people that are redeemed during the tribulation period. We call them tribulation saints, and God's going to love them just as much as He loves us and as much as He loved the remnant of Israel under the Old Covenant. And so we have been given by God this special privilege to serve and represent Him in this world. A man found and hid. You say, well, how does that fit? Well, think about it. 
is the true church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm talking about true believers. I'm not talking about Christendom, the sphere of professing Christianity. We talked about that last night. That's this enormous glob, organization, whatever, of people. There are lots of people. I mean, a drunkard will profess Jesus Christ if you give him $10. There are a lot of people that profess the name of Christ in our world today. That doesn't mean they're born again. But I'm talking about truly born-again people. The remnant, those who love the Lord and know the Lord and know they know the Lord. That have eternal life. You can't have eternal life and not know you have it. If you have eternal life, you know you have it. You may not know a lot of other things theologically, but you know you have life. And you have a relationship with the Lord. And it gives us great boldness and confidence. But the true church is hidden in this world, isn't it? Is the true church thought of highly? No. If you go into the foreign field and genuine believers want to represent the Lord, well, say, for instance, if your brother was praying for Iran, if you were to go over to Iran today and stand on a street corner and start preaching, do you think you would be highly recognized for doing that? And I appreciate brother's prayer for that sister over there that's suffering. And there are others that are suffering over there too. When I was in Jordan several years ago, I couldn't believe how many pastors were studying at the, se the uh, seminary there uh, in Amman that were pastors from uh, Iraq. And Dr. Imad Shahade, a Palestinian who's a born-again Christian that runs that seminary in Amman, Jordan, the only seminary in the Middle East that teaches New Testament Christianity as far as I know. And he introduced me. He says, well, where did these people, they, they serve in Iraq. This was back in 2000, before 9-11 and before the emancipation from Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was still in power. And, he, and I said, well, what are they going to do? Oh, they've got some training, and then they're going to go back. They're going back to Iraq? Yes. And what will happen to them? Well, they'll probably be persecuted, and many of them will probably be martyred, like their friends have been. And they're going to go anyway? Yes. Can't wait to go. Why? Because their whole perspective was changed. Who changed it? Jesus. Jesus changed their perspective. They were going in there for their people. And so, the church, I think it would be accurate to say, is hid in this world and it will continue to be hid as far as public recognition by the world system. The world system despises the true church. The world system receives Christendom because it's like them. It's worldly, has a bureaucracy, is involved in all kinds of money and commerce, likes gold, and all those kinds of things. They say, well, yeah, we can relate to that. You're fine. But the true church... Someone has written... I think he's a brother from East Texas. Some, the, the Trail of Blood, I think, was the name of the book. And he follows the, the Trail of Martyrs all the way back to the first century. You know, during the time of the Reformation, we often think that, you know, oh, that would have been neat to know Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and these different reformers. 
But you know what they would have thought of us? <laughs> they would have thought of us the same they thought, way they thought of the Anabaptists, that they saw that they were killed and martyred many of the Anabaptists because the Anabaptists met in a simple way around the elements, followed the Bible, and didn't believe in a clergy-laity separation and believed in the priesthood of all believers. And a lot of the Reformers didn't like that. You and I would be more like the Anabaptists than we would be like the Reformers. But see, we sometimes get history distorted. Treasure hidden in a field. For joy over it, he sells all that he has. What did he sell? He gave his only begotten son. Gave all that he had to redeem that field. But that brings us to the second of these two parables in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like... And notice in verse 44, treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. So it was a man, which I think is a much closer picture to God being Christ being God and man than a merchant because in verse 45 a merchant it's the the Canaanites were called merchants in the Old Testament and this merchant he's a businessman he is he is someone that is seeking to make money in this world okay that's what a merchant does and so he says it's, it's like a merchant and he's seeking something. He's seeking beautiful pearls. So he's a merchant in the area of the pearl industry. And when you're in that industry, like in any other industry, you're in it to make a profit. Right? That's why you're in the business. And so you know that the more costly the pearl you find when you're pearl diving the more money you get for the pearl. And so therefore, you do better in providing for your family and putting food on the table. It's that practical, right? That's how merchants and merchandise work. That's how commerce works. So a merchant was seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price. One pearl. Now, it's interesting to me the treasure, treasure in itself, the word has plurality in it, right? If I was to bring you up here and let me show you my treasure, and I just pulled out one little piece of gem and said, here's my treasure, you'd say, okay, that's treasure. But you'd kind of expect to find more than one piece, right? Because usually treasure is in a treasure chest and it's all kinds of gems. It has plurality built into it. But here it's different. It's singular. It's one. One unique, special pearl. And it's interesting. Over in chapter 12 and verse 24, the same word one appears in reference to the Lord Jesus by the Pharisees. They say, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And that word fellow, you notice, is in italics in your Bible. He's, the word there is really this one. They won't even call him by name. They won't even call him by a title. They just say this one. And then again, so that's in the same context here as chapter 13, part of the busy day. And then in the end of the chapter, in verse 56, we see 
And his sisters are here, and his brothers, and are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And man is in italics. Again, in the Greek, it's this one. Where did this one get all these things? So, in the immediate context, this idea of singular unit, this one person, is what's emphasized. And in both cases, it's referring to the Lord Jesus. But to me, what, what really convinced me was this one pearl of great price. Now, that's, a, that's an adequate translation. But it doesn't get anywhere near, and that's where Bible study and word study can be so helpful. You look up this word price in vines and you find out, you realize that this word is only used one time in the Bible, and that's right here. And you would expect a word describing our Lord Jesus to occur one time. In fact, this word, I would never attribute this word to anyone in the church. I would never attribute it to any singular believer. Because the word time in the Greek is that has the idea of honor, reverence, uniqueness. Okay? In fact, it's used in the immediate context over in the end of the chapter in verse 57. A prophet, the Lord says, a prophet is not without, what's the word? Honor. Time. It's the same word, except in his own country and in his own house. So even in the immediate context. But the idea of preciousness is also in this word. The idea of great price is the idea that it's so precious that it's priceless. That's why they're translating it great price. And what Matthew does here, he takes that word time for honor and reverence and he puts a prefix on it, palu, which is what we get many, poly. We talk about polynomials and poly is the, the word for many. So he says... This one pearl, which is of great, abundant preciousness and reverence. Wow. And to me then, that this particular parable has to be referring to our view of Christ. You say, well, what about seeking? It said the man was seeking. Were we seeking Christ? Oh, yes, we were. In chapter 7, in verse 7 of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at this back in May. He says, ask, seek, knock. You remember? A-S-K? Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. And he's telling these people, these multitudes that were following, he says, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. From the human standpoint, when we came to know the Lord, yes, we were seeking Him. From the divine standpoint, the Lord was drawing us. So with the whole drawing ministry, the Father is drawing us to the Son. The Son is revealing the Father to us, according to Matthew 11. And the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 2, is revealing the Son to us. And in John 16... And so that the entire Godhead is involved. That's how special the treasure is, see, 
in drawing us to salvation. At the same time, we are seeking because we've begun to taste and see that the Lord is good, worthy. And eventually a point in time comes where we say, Lord, I want You to be my Savior. And that's what I think is pictured when he says he sold all that he had and bought that pearl. You say, well, that sounds like merit that he purchased his own salvation. No, it doesn't have to mean that. It could, but it doesn't have to. And it's interesting, is that phrase ever used anywhere else in the gospel of our relationship with the Lord? <laughs> Glad you asked. Right here in Matthew, again, where we would expect it to be validated, over a few pages in chapter 19, in the story of the rich young ruler, you remember what our Lord said in verse 21? If you want to be perfect, go to what? Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Ah. So that picture can apply to the idea of setting aside everything else that was important to us. And whether we realized it or not, whether you realized it or not, whether I did, the moment you trusted Christ, if you really trusted Him, you really did, you were convinced, I was convinced, there was no one else. There was no one else who could save me. I would have gone to that other person first. I was convinced there was nothing more I could do. I could pile on all the money I had to this salvation. I could never purchase it. And I realized this pearl was of such unique preciousness and reverence and honor. I wanted just Him. But even then, I had to ask Him. I had to ask Him. Intellectual knowledge of the gospel is not enough, is it? You come to the place and say, Wow, I understand now the gospel. That He died on that cross. That I'm a sinner. That God wants a relationship with me. That this is the only salvation God will receive. I understand it now. And then I turn around and walk away. Is that conversion? No. That's not a conversion. That's just intellectual agreement with God to come to the place. And we have to come to that place first, don't we? We have to come to the place of understanding the gospel first. But just understanding the gospel doesn't mean you're saved. This is where a lot of children in Christian families growing up, they figure, well, my parents were saved and my grandparents were saved and my parents even may be elders in the meeting. So therefore, I must be saved. Wrong. Not true. In fact, you're held sometimes to a higher standard because of the privileges you had growing up, being brought up in children's church and Sunday school and things like that that I never had. And a lot of us didn't have that privilege. So the Lord can expect more. To whom much is given, much more is required, right? That's in Matthew chapter 12 too. So we can't play games with the Lord. Billy Graham often makes the statement, you can be born in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. And you can be born in a Christian home. That doesn't make you a Christian. The Lord says, you have to ask me. I'm not going to force myself on you. 
Have you done that tonight? Can you look back at a time in your life when you were convinced there was no one like Jesus Christ in His uniqueness, in His reverence, in His holiness, in His worth, and just said, wow, He deserves that first place. I'm going to set aside all these trophies. I went out, I had a bunch of trophies from racing and all, and out in the dumpster they went. Because there's only one person going on that trophy shelf now. Jesus Christ. And He's been there ever since. And there's nothing like walking with Him in this world. It wasn't an easy decision to give up a six-figure salary in engineering to do what I'm doing now with no salary, no vacation, no benefits, no package, nothing. Like jumping off a cliff. Except I knew there was somebody down there to catch me. The Lord Jesus, right? But not all of us is called to do that. But all of us is called to love Him with everything we've got. The picture in Luke 7 is pretty amazing, isn't it? This Pharisee has... He says, I'm going to... I'm going to really get to know who Jesus Christ is. He invites him over for, for supper. And as was the custom in that day, that the open area of the courtyard in the house was open to the public, and, and some of the public could come in and kind of stand outside and watch the celebration and the dinner and the festival. And I'm sure the Pharisee went to all the nth degree. And in comes this woman, who Luke says was a sinner. And she wouldn't stop weeping at his feet. Because when they ate in that day, they sat, they, they sat on, a, on their side on a triclinium so that your feet were off to the side behind you. You didn't put your feet, you didn't sit in a chair with your feet under a table. Their feet, your feet were off. And she wiped his feet with her hair. Remember what the Lord said to Simon? He said, Simon, let me ask you something. There was a man who had two debtors. One owed him the equivalent of $10 million, and one owed him the equivalent of about $120. And the man decided to frankly forgive them both. Forgave both debts. He said, tell me, Simon, who do you think is going to love that man more? The one who was forgiven the greater debt. The Pharisee even knew that. But he didn't know the parable was about him. The Lord said, you've answered truly. You see, I don't think that woman, whether she was a prostitute or whatever that meant by saying she was a sinner, I don't think she was a greater sinner than the Pharisee. I don't think that's what our Lord's trying to say because all sin is abhorrent to a holy God, isn't it? What's our Lord saying? The woman understood her sinfulness more than the self-righteous, religious Pharisee understood his sinfulness. See, a self-righteous, religious person will struggle with understanding how sinful they are. And someone like that doesn't love the Lord Jesus very much. 
because they think, well, of course he saved me. I was such a religious person after all. Right? Beloved, I said to it on, on Sunday, Exodus 21. The one who wanted to be a slave forever to his master, when the time came for him to be the year of release, he said, No, I will not leave. I love my master. I will not go free. The Lord deserves that kind of love from us, doesn't he? If we really understand how sinful and wretched and wicked and ungodly and helpless we were when he saved us, we would love him more and more and more and say, Lord, I can't ever love you enough for all eternity. I can love you and it won't be enough. And, and we'd be right. The Holy Son of God gave himself for people like you and me. His view of us is we're his special treasure. Our view of Christ is the one who made it all possible. Lord, you are a pearl. One pearl. One unique pearl. A precious gem of priceless worth and significance and preciousness. Peter will say, using a slightly different word, to you who believe, he is precious. So, since we're thinking of our Lord like that, Let's just close, and Tim, you can come up and do it if you want to. Let's just do the first two verses of Praise the Savior, Ye Who Know Him. 